I always want to know, when did you start practicing Buddhism philosophies? Well, it's hard to say because, uh, you know, we do have this, this idea of past lives. So I think anybody who comes to Buddhism in this life probably may have had some experiences in previous lives. But I think I was inclined this way since the age of about 15. I suddenly one day, out of the blue, by myself in a park, after school, you know, I think I was in grade 10, I suddenly had a kind of a realization about the nature of life. And the, the realization was that I have to, I have to choose uh, about how I'm going to conduct myself in this life, what I'm going to, uh, what am I going to put my shoulder against the wheel of? And I kind of scanned across the possibilities and I came across Buddhism, which I'd only, I'd only heard about. And the only thing I'd heard about it was it was peaceful. <laughs> and uh, so in my 15-year-old mind, um, I thought, I think that's kind of where, what I like, you know, what I would feel comfortable being um, a part of. And so it took me a long time to actually encounter formal Buddhism and start to learn about it. It was in my early 20s, really, that I started to know anything, learn anything about it. I was actually in university at that time in Toronto. And then I, I was reading books on, and of course, I read books on all kinds of philosophies. I had all kinds of education at university about the modern view of the world, the scientific view of the world, the technological view of the world, the political systems, Marxism, capitalism, socialism anarchism. Uh, I considered all of them. And I spent a lot of time reading big fat philosophy books as well. And eventually, it narrowed itself down to either a kind of a logical a kind of commitment to logic and philosophy, uh, the modern, the ultra modern view of things or Buddhism. And then I explored Buddhism and eventually became quite pervasive. And the reason why is because Buddhism actually has exercises for transforming the way you think and feel. Philosophy and logic and so forth have guidelines for how to think, but it doesn't necessarily transform the way you feel. So Buddhism has exercises in, how, in, uh, in actually starting to manifest emotions that you prefer and to sort through these emotions and ask yourself, well, why can't you just feel like this all the time? And what you find out is because I can't pay attention long enough to feel like that all the time, or I forget <laughs> that, to feel like that all the time. So Buddhism gives you a bunch of exercises to train your mind so that you can be aware of how you're feeling and aware of ways to bring in more positive attitudes. Uh, and when I say positive attitudes, I mean that which feels positive within you, in your emotional structure. So Buddhism has an overall training structure for transforming your, your attitudes and emotions in this world. So that was, that was different than anything I encountered in university or in big fat books. And by the way, I was in uh, music. So music transforms your feelings too. And maybe that's why I was in it because to hear a great piece of music or to play a great piece of music is emotionally transformative. But even music and most people in the world are, you know, are affected by music. They, they are, they know what that is and they, they look, times to change how they feel and, and help them. And uh, so they look for that and music is great for that, but it's not as, as deep or uplifting as this view of reality, which Buddhism offers. What are some songs that you listen to right now? I try not to listen to, to music. Music is incidental. So monks actually have a rule do not play or 
uh, participate in music. So, you know, by the way, I have a master's degree in performance classical music, and my my instrument was classical guitar, and I made my I made my living at that. I graduated from the University of Toronto with master's degree in performance classical guitar. And so that was my life. And by the way, I was married to an opera singer at the time as well. Wow. <laughs> so we both made our living in music and we met as musicians. And that is something you have to give up when you become a monk. And yeah. so that's an interesting thing. It, it, and by the way, nobody, it's not like my mother made me become a Buddhist monk. <laughs> my mother and my father are, were not aware of Buddhism at all at the time. It's a purely personal choice that I made. And, and in order to make that choice, you, you must relinquish music. And, uh, and because it's a higher, it's kind of a higher form of, of art than music. So here's a little saying that I sometimes give is that I used to play the guitar with six strings attached. Now I play the guitar with no strings attached. So it's a kind of a, a music that only, only if you train yourself in certain ways, the music of silence is better than the music of sound. So this is, it's not, it, it's a beautiful art, but it doesn't require notes to it. Having said that, I still have a vast catalog of memories of all kinds of, of pieces from the repertoire of the classical music, European classical music repertoire. Also modern music, folk songs, jazz, all of these things. Because actually I did study jazz as well in the States. Before I went to the University of Toronto, I went to a, a jazz college, famous jazz college in Boston called Berkeley. And uh, I play, spent a few years there uh, just studying and practicing playing jazz. So uh, I was interested in all these things and the culture behind them. Um, ideas behind them and so forth. They're very, it's very beautiful. It's not, there's nothing wrong about music, but it's, if you want to really specialize in the spaciousness of mind and the lightness of heart, which is independent of the external world, then you really have to stop using those as crutches to transform your emotions. So you have to learn how to do it directly yourself. Besides giving up music when you became a monk, what's another lifestyle change that you had to give up that was pretty hard to give up in the moment? I don't, I don't think that music was actually hard to give up. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't hard to give up, no. Uh, the reason why was I, I had been meditating for years before I became a monk. And it, the meditation itself naturally kind of replaces your the joys that you get out of music and, and various things. So I also gave up the opera singer. <laughs> so not only <laughs> opera, but the opera singer. Yeah. So I, I gave up being married and I gave up being, you know, living in, in a family as well. So one of the things that monks can't do is have a girlfriend. <laughs> Did you have kids or, at the time? No, I didn't. And it's very fortunate that I didn't. I, I, some little voice inside me said, don't have kids. <laughs> uh, some, some, uh, and I, I'm not sure uh, it wasn't just against having children or anything, but something said it's, I, there's still things that you may need to do here and children would be an impediment to that. So I'm very fortunate that, that actually I didn't because it, it would have been very much difficult, more difficult to, to leave and go off and become a monk if I had children. If you but had that kids. Is, what's that? I said, if you had kids, would you still, do you still think you'd become a monk? That's an interesting question, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know because they're tremendous. I love kids. I love kids. I mean, I love people as well. And uh, it would be really hard to walk away from kids because they, they completely depend on you. They, 
you're as if you're their father, you're everything to them. Your your mother and father are everything to you when you're a child. So I would have clearly known that. The Buddha himself had uh, one child. And on the night of his child's birth, he left. <laughs> and I think that he left because he knew that if he stayed for a week or whatever, the attachment would be too much. So he left without telling anybody on the night of his first child's birth. Wow. He went off and left. He was, he was a, by, he was a member of royalty. You know, he was a prince. Yeah. And uh, so that's pretty radical. He, he left the palace without, uh, without his credit card <laughs> and went off into the forest to, uh, to seek the meaning of life, if there was one, to experience the possibilities. And the, the possibilities were not the frivolous possibilities. He, after all, he, was, he would be equivalent to a multimillionaire or a, you know, a royalty so it wasn't, he had all the experiences in the world. He had education. He'd listened to music and uh, wonderful uh, parties and the best food and uh, entertainment and all of this kind of thing. And uh, he, he, he knew it wasn't there. It just wasn't there in, in those dimensions. I mean, the ultimate wasn't there. There's not, it's not these things, uh, wealth and uh, enjoyment of music and, the arts and families and so forth are, there's nothing wrong with them except that they're not, they don't answer the ultimate questions in life. The ultimate questions are not answered by, by mere happiness of the ordinary life. Um, the Buddha did not discourage people from being married and, and doing these things, but uh, he, he said, well, there are certain people that, it's not enough and they don't feel that they've answered the ultimate questions in life. And they may, they, they need to contemplate and meditate. They may stay in the household life while they do this, or they may in fact decide, okay, I'm going to specialize. I, I, I want all the time in my life to just focus on this. What are the and, ultimate uh, questions? What's that on the what, ultimate questions? Yeah. 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 What are the ultimate questions? Well, the, the primary question is this tragedy. You know, if you're a sensitive person and you look out on life and you see the, the things that happen to people and, and animals as well, the suffering that happens to people. So just, uh, it's just dreadful what the kind of sorrow that people have sometimes. Uh, they, they lose, they lose like a... a what if you lost a child, you know, if, if, if your child dies in front of you, well, and it's bad enough, you lose a parent. I mean, if you're a child and, and your mother dies or your, parent, your father dies, I mean, it's, it's, it's just shock that goes through your system and never leaves you. Uh, what if you're, you're, you want to be healthy and happy, but you're born with a congenital disease, maybe you're disfigured, uh, you can't play with the other kids. You have to stay in a bubble all the time, or you're, you have to have kidney dialysis, or you're all kinds of terrible things. You're born without a leg, or you lose a leg, you lose an arm, you, you lose your eyes. You're born blind, deaf, deformed. On and on it goes. The possibilities for suffering in this life are immense. Is there a way to deal with this? Is there a way to look at it? without being overwhelmed yourself by the sorrow of it? Is there a way, is there any meaning to it at all? So that's another question is what's the point? Is there no point to life? Is there no meaning, no point? Or is there one? Because it would be really nice to know, if there is one, it'd be nice to know. <laughs> what's yeah. your opinion on that? Like, what's your definition of life? What's the objective of life to you? Uh, the The... The aim of life is to overcome the uh, suffering. 
And it doesn't mean that uh, that we're going to sort of invent some medicine that eliminates all diseases and all birth defects and aging and death. I mean, how are we going to eliminate death? Yeah, you can't. Uh, yeah. So, so are we going? Is there a way to overcome this situation through understanding, through wisdom? And that's the that's the aim of of the teachings of the Buddha. It says there is there is all this suffering, and he wants you to really look at it. He, he thinks, yeah, you're doing all right now. You know, you're happy, and uh, you got some money and a nice little family. But tragedy happens, and even if it doesn't, it could have. And I think we all know that at some point when we're in the midst of our well-being and happiness, we think, what if what if something bad happened and, and somebody I love died or was injured or what if I what if I get in a car accident and I'm paralyzed from the waist down you know and how, how do you how do you manage things like that and maybe it doesn't happen but everybody in the back of their mind thinks you know almost anything can happen to anybody and you know so that's kind of basic anxiety in life basic nervousness worry what hap what will happen if things go bad for the economy what if, what if a big pandemic hits the world then what yeah <laughs> yeah how are we going to deal with that and so and uh so this is possible for anybody uh, is there any way to look at life which manages all of the risks and the terrible things that happen and allows you to live in a way that is free from fear and worry and anxiety and unfulfilled longing and agitation, late nights where you can't sleep, and then days where, where you're depressed all day or all week or all month or all year, uh, and, or stuck in uncertainty where you, you, you're just not sure what to do or what to think. Are there answers to this? And this is what, so Buddhism is exactly proposing there are answers to this. And the answers are not external. So it's not something that visits you from, from God. Uh, it's something that you do yourself and that, that you must do yourself, that nobody else can do for you. And that you're, you're obliged to do if you want to lighten the heart. And basically everybody does want to, even if they say they don't, they don't want to be happy. I don't believe them. <laughs> they want to be happy. Nobody, does, nobody wants to be unhappy. They just don't know how not to be unhappy. And so there are a very systematic series of teachings and trainings of the emotional center and the what we would call the vision center you know we sometimes people talk about the third eye which is in the middle of your forehead <clears throat> this is another kind of vision it's not really an eye it's it's the way they talked about wisdom can you you see with your two eyes but what do you see you see through your own wisdom or your ignorance. So your eyes perceive, but there's a third eye, which is either ignorant or wise, or some degree of ignorance or wisdom. And it's that, we want to open that eye of wisdom, the eye of the wisdom of how to navigate life, how to free the heart from its unnecessary stress and suffering because it's unnecessary. This suffering, this terrible situation we find ourselves in, the suffering that we experience in it is ultimately unnecessary on the emotional dimension. There are ways to go through this life and not be at the mercy of circumstances. And so that's very, very, very valuable. It's something that only you can do for yourself and requires lots of work and commitment uh, but it has the ultimate reward. It is what everybody is seeking, but they just don't know how to get it. So they look in the outside world for, for this 
well sense of well-being yeah how would you recommend to somebody to go after that and get that sense of peace and optimism and be in control of themselves their reactions their thoughts and their own happiness well first of all they have to give it a chance so they so lots of people are think well that i'm not sure that that anybody can do that i i don't know about that you know so the first thing you have to do is say well you know what have i got to lose by trying to uh, investigate and uplift my heart. What, what's wrong with trying that? So the first thing is the idea of, yeah, okay. I don't, I don't know whether it'll work. I'm not too sure about all this stuff, but I think, I, I think it'd be worth trying. I, happiness is, is a tremendous value. And I, and I think everybody wants it. So you, you think, okay, I'll give it a shot. And then now, how do you learn anything? You go to people that are good at it. So when I was a musician or when I started music, I went to a teacher. <laughs> I, I liked music and I thought I'd if I could play that, I would be so happy. But I thought, well, maybe I could figure it out on my own, but other people can actually play that. So why don't I go to them and they'll show me how to play it and maybe I can learn how to play that. And so that was a, that's a good thing. And so this is an art as well. The art of investigation, the art of transformation of the emotions, the art of getting the vision of life is uh, something that can be taught systematically. So that's, you, you want to associate with people who are aspiring to that. And, lot, it, and so that's one of the great blessings of life. And I, I give teachings on this, what are the blessings of life? And the first blessing is to separate from the foolish. Now, who are the foolish? The foolish are the ones who don't know what the beautiful values of life are. And they, they cause themselves distress and they cause distress in others around them because they're hostile greedy, confused, uh, violent. Uh, they, they don't know the boundaries of uh, other people's possessions. They, they take what should not be taken. They take advantage of people, all this kind of stuff. So that's a tremendous burden to be around. It's a tremendous uh, cause of unhappiness. So the first thing is that we, we start to be careful with who we spend our time with and what, including ideas. So the person we, so lots of people spend their time with somebody who's long dead. They, uh, but they have written books or said things and so forth. And so they hang out with bad ideas. So the first thing is to discriminate against bad ideas versus good ideas. And that uh, you start hanging around with good ideas people who are that you feel safe with who uh, are kindly who are generous who have clarity and intelligence they see things uh, that no, nobody is afraid of them they don't propagate fear amongst other beings and so this is the kind of person that you want to learn from and do, are they happy as, as well? Are, do they know the secret of happiness and have they achieved some, some quality of happiness in their life? So that's, you want to start hanging about with them. So you learn from them. And it is like anything else. If you learn, if you want to learn judo, you go to the judo uh, academy. And uh, you want to learn music, you go to the music academy. Anything you want to learn, you, there are people who already are good at it. So you look for the best teacher you can find. And then you apprentice to them. You, you go there and you study with them and, and, and so forth. And sometimes you, find, you, get, you get to a level where you're as good as the teacher. And then you, you look for, are there any better teachers? Because I don't want to stop here. I want to I keep growing. So this is the thing is that you look for the best teachers, the best situation to help you along. And that's, that's the way humans really work. And that's why that's the value of, uh, of, 
that's that's the wonderful thing is a teacher should be held in high esteem because how else do humans learn they all the things we learn from childhood on are really taught to us we're we're not we're not a bear in the forest you know like the bear after a year or two they they're on their own they yeah. they don't need any instruction they nature tells them what to do the human no 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 you can even when you're 50 you, you're still learning things yeah so after somebody has seeked out a mentorship if they want to gain more happiness gain more peace in their life after they have that mentorship what are a few steps that they can do in order to increase that happiness and peace and not be so reactive in everyday life well and they they should on a regular basis they should uh at certain perhaps in the morning first of all is to sit down and recall the instructions which they've received because quite often we we so-called have learned something, but then we forget and we, we do it again. You know, we, we know we shouldn't do something and then we do it. And people are always saying this. I knew I shouldn't have done that. I, I learned that lesson before and then I did it again. You know, <laughs> So yeah. you start training yourself. So there's one thing to, to be, to have heard a phrase, but to make it real is another thing. How do you make it real? And this business of making it real is by repetition and getting the feel of it. So this is kind of like, uh, this is, uh, you know, it's closer to a physical sport than it is to an idea. Uh, how, to, how to ski through life, how to surf through life without falling off the board, how to ride the wave for a day. How, how to ride the wave of goodwill and relaxed ease and non-fear for the morning. And, and at first, you're, it's great if you can manage to get that and it's taking all your effort to get through the morning without losing your temper or something. But after a while, you get so you can, you know, you can stand on your hands on the surfboard. <laughs> you don't, it becomes second nature. So it's a training so this is the word that we use. We, we're training ourselves and we are keeping an eye and we are doing exercises and repetitions. Some, we start with the words and then the words become uh, a feeling. And then we don't let the feeling go out. So this is kind of what we call building a fire. So when you build a fire in the wilderness, you... It's very easy to make mistakes if you go out camping and especially if you go out in the cold and the wet or the winter, you're in a kind of a hurry to build a fire to warm yourself, but it's very easy to, to just put on the wrong uh, things or add the wrong wood to try to make it go and it goes out and then you have to start again. After a while you learn that, that you need really dry kindling and birch bark and things like that. And then you have to wait till it's up to a certain level before you add other wood. So this is the art of making a fire of warmth. And this is the art of cultivating emotions like goodwill of true friendliness for, for all the living beings, including yourself is a process of fire building. And we have to carefully, first of all, we have to create the flame to begin with. And that may be a very small flame. So we need very special material that is easy to bring that emotion into existence. And then we keep adding <clears throat> until the flame is, is great. So you're actually walking around. I mean, most people sometime in their lives, sometimes in, in a day, they feel a sense of warmth or goodwill towards somebody. And it's a shame that they, they don't nurture it and cultivate it and grow it because it's great to be around friends, isn't it? You know, why this is one of the great human values. We, we seek out friendship. We hang out with people that are, that warm us up and other people want to hang out with us because we warm them up, you know? So, but you find out that the actual, the, the warmth comes from from you comes out of you towards others 
and eventually you become independent, you can have this sense, profound sense of friendliness and the completion that comes through the friendliness, even when you're alone. I spent years in a, in a alone in a shack in the woods without company, but I didn't feel deprived in any way. I didn't feel terribly lonely and so forth. I felt I was, I was just radiating goodwill for everybody, including the bears and the, even the pack rats that occasionally would invade my, my shack. <laughs> so you have to take on this, realize this, it's up to you uh, to cult cultivate this great friendship for the world. And if you do, you'll be rewarded greatly. And it's a skill. It's an art. It's like producing beautiful music out of a great violin or a, on a great piano. Uh, at first you just play notes and then you play a little, little melody that sounds okay. And then eventually you add some chords and then, and eventually you can play the masterpieces and they're, they sweep you away. They, they carry you into another realm of, of the ult, ult, sort of the ultimate meaning of life. And this is this emotion of loving kindness lets you see, uh, your connection with all beings, your place in this universe is revealed to you when you acknowledge the situation that, that all beings are in, including yourself. And they, the, your heart responds to this. It's built right in, by the way. So it's always the best of feelings. Loving kindness, friendliness is the best of feelings. And that's why we seek it out. Yeah, when I came to do my retreat with you, you taught us a loving kindness meditation and I, I've been doing it ever since 20 minutes each and every single day. And it brings me a great sense of happiness just by unconditionally wishing well, wellness, happiness, and peace for all types of beings. Yes. We introduce people to this and it can be introduced at a very, at any stage in life at, uh, in great old age and in great young age. And uh, I, I had a woman come here who was uh, practicing meditation and she was, she found it so beneficial. She said, well, I, I want to bring this back to, um, can I bring this into a school? And uh, I said, well, yes, you could, you know, you could take it to a primary school, but in, in Canada, uh, schools are not religious. They don't like religion being brought in. So you're going to have to just keep this non-religious, but you're going to just you're just going to have the kids stand up and say, may I be well, happy, and peaceful. And then, then say, and may my parents be well, happy, and peaceful. And may my family be well, happy, and peaceful. I mean, who can object to that? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, who, if you don't tell kids that that's, that they should feel that they should want themselves to be well and happy and peaceful, they may not know that Yeah, because the That's world, might, their friends might not tell them that the world, if you don't tell them that they may have never heard that before. So what a, what a, a strange thing to say. It's all right to want me to be well and happy and peaceful. And I, I should wish that for myself and my parents, and my brothers and sisters, and my family. And then what about other people? What about the strangers? Why not? You know, et cetera. So she did that, and it turned out, oh, they, they really liked that. They started saying it at the assembly. So they would have an assembly. This is a, jun this is a uh, elementary school, grade one to seven. And then they, they have these assemblies, you know, call everybody into the gymnasium. And, and they did, the, the teachers would recite, have, have them, everybody say this beforehand. And so everybody feel, and then occasionally kids would put up their hand in the middle of class and say, can we do a loving kindness? <laughs> so they say, okay. <laughs> so they used it on rainy days when everybody was kind of stuck inside at recess and for various, so it really, really took off yeah, and for, you can teach it. It's, it's a natural, very natural thing. But if, if nobody is, allowed to say things like this well of course you can't assume that people know this especially children you actually have to say it out loud 
you know, it as adults, it's obvious to us that two plus two is four, but it's not obvious to kids and you have to teach them that. And they don't even get two plus two is four. They have to be taught two apples and two apples are four apples. <laughs> they can't get just two and two is four. They have to have apples. <laughs> so, and you have to tell them this and show them this because it's not just natural to humans. And then eventually, of course, they, they integrate this and then it becomes, of course, that's the case. But if you don't tell them about these beautiful emotions and attitudes towards themselves and their family, they won't know this. They'll, they won't have heard that. They'll, heard, they'll, heard, they'll have heard all kinds of other things like, I'm better than you and you're bad and you're stupid and you're ugly and so-and-so is beautiful and they're smart and you're not. And what a, what a, what's a life like that? You know, what's, what's that? That's a bad life. That's a hard life. That's an that's a anxious life. It's a competitive life where any moment you could be, you could lose the race, you know? So you have to have emotions that nurture you that show you what the real values in life are. And if you don't have those, nothing, no amount of money will help. No amount of music will help. <laughs> no amount of fame will help. No matter how beautiful you are. I see the, just a few days ago, this, uh, some model, some mo uh, winner of a beauty contest jumped off a roof, you know, and killed herself. And was like, what? If beauty made you happy, then people wouldn't do that. And then wealthy people kill themselves and great musicians kill themselves and great athletes kill themselves. And so none of those things are enough to even keep you alive. If you don't have this sense of well-being and, and good heartedness, then none of those things will matter. Those things are not bad, the beauty and talent, and yeah. things, money, fine. But if you don't have the basics of emotional well-being and emotional health, uh, you're missing the whole game. Yeah, if your mind not a beautiful place to live in, none of those external factors matter. Right. And you can well, see this actually manifesting in their in surroundings where people are feeling very negative. Uh, they will manifest that in their environment. The environment will they they won't be able to to maintain themselves, they won't be able to wash themselves, they won't care enough to brush their teeth, and they won't care enough to take the garbage out. And things start to spiral down because it's reflecting the inner life. And so this is, uh, the outer life is just a picture of what the inner life is. And when they, if a person returns to love and well-being and uh, good emotional health, then their environment clears up. They, they tidy up. They enjoy beautiful things. They, they radiate beauty and they become creative and uh, productive and they love to share and you know they they invite you over for dinner and they make special cookies for everybody and everybody is enjoying themselves because the joy of loving kindness is abundant it is inexhaustible so it spills over spills over out of your life into other lives as well for loving kindness like i understand how people at the start should wish themselves wellness, happiness, and peace, and then start wishing people that they love dearly this level of wellness, happiness, and peace. But how do you get beyond that and start wishing that level of happiness and success to people who have done you wrong, people who have cheated on you, scammed you out on business deals? I feel like mm -hmm. it's easy for people to wish loving kindness for themselves and the people that they love, but to get past that barrier and start wishing that level of happiness and peace to the people who have done them wrong. How would someone do that? Well, that's, <clears throat> that's a advanced practice. And uh, once you realize, well, it's, it's going to benefit me. If I, if I don't have any people that I hate, then I'll never have the feeling of hate. Now, who's, who benefits from that? Me. I benefit from never having to experience hate. Because hate is a very ugly feeling. 
and I'm the one who experiences it, not my enemy. My enemy rejoices in my anger and hatred. So if, if somebody hates another person, they're very happy to hear that they, they hate you because <laughs> 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 they're, they're torturing you without have you having to lift a finger. <laughs> so they, this is what happens in schoolyards. You know, you provoke somebody because you know, if you can make them mad, then uh, you'll have accomplished your goal. Eh? So, yeah. So if you, you say, well, I'm not going to give my enemies satisfaction. If I pick up anger, so anger is like a stick. Uh, you pick it, that stick up to hit somebody, but the stick on one end is, is burning and the other end is covered with excrement. So you got a choice. You're either going to burn your hand or cover it with filth in order to pick that stick up to hit somebody else. So how about you just leave that stick on the ground? <laughs> that would make the most sense. So, that's the first thing is to recognize the disadvantage of anger and hatred that, that your enemy doesn't experience your hatred. You do, and you do it to yourself. And that's like inviting your enemy to live in your house with you. That's the, that's a stupid thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So you decide, well, you know, if I can't, by the way, so this is uh, very difficult with some people, some people have been terribly abused in life and et cetera. So they may not come to the state where they can actually bring that person to mind, the person that did them wrong and uh, without becoming angry. So the advice is if you can't at least have equanimity, have neutrality, don't bring them to mind. So learn that it's not something that you have to do that somehow it's healthy to have to face the, the people in your life that hurt you or abused you, at, that did bad things to you. It's not necessary that you sort of face this and deal with it. It's in fact very unhealthy that if you can't bring that person to mind with at least just neutrality, then don't bring them to mind. And this is a very important lesson for people that you're allowed not to think about certain things because when you think about them, negative emotions arise and that's not good for you. And it's not, it's not unhealthy to suppress or remove certain thoughts from your mind. It's not unhealthy. And you'll hear this kind of talk in psychology often that you, you have to sort of bring everything up and face it and talk, you know, no, you don't. <laughs> it's, it's bad advice. Uh, I, I can see that, that people give that advice because it seems that people are not aware of, of the fact that they're angry all the time. <clears throat> so they need to be the problem, the problematic relationship needs to be brought up and they have to understand that. But it's not, uh, it doesn't cure you to, to recognize your animosity to, to somebody. The only thing that'll ever cure you to make you feel well is that at least neutrality. So if you can't do it, if you can't bring the person to mind with at least equanimity, don't bring them to mind. But what should you do in the meantime? You should bring up people that you can have at least neutrality and at best loving kindness for. And so there's other wholesome emotions you can have towards people. You can have compassion towards people. So, you know, somebody who's out of their mind on the street, there's all kinds of people living on the street and they're, you walk past, they shout at you and they threaten you and all kinds yeah. of stuff. But you think, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's an example of somebody who was abused as a child, becomes a drug addict, is got schizoid tendencies, and they're living on the street. They're probably not going to live another four or five years. Uh, am I angry at them? Am I insulted at them? No, I feel just nothing but compassion. What you see there is just how dreadful life can be and what it does to a human's mind. Yeah. And so you, you have this beautiful emotion called loving, uh, you have called compassion. And compassion, by the way, is just loving kindness 
for one who is suffering. And so you can you might have one of the most beautiful experiences you ever had when somebody's out of their mind on the sidewalk is shouting and raging at you. And all you can think of is, my gosh, what it would be like, what's it like to be that person? How they must be suffering. And you you have a a burst of light and loving kindness at that moment. Yeah. You don't have grief, by the way. You, it's not, this is something that needs to be understood by people is that compassion is not being swallowed up by grief at the suffering of the world. If you, if you are swallowed up by grief at the suffering of the world, you are now going to add one more suffering person to the world. And the world's got enough suffering people. You don't need to add yourself. So don't, don't go into grief with your compassion. Go into just loving kindness. It's All it is is loving kindness, which is a beautiful feeling, a warm feeling for those who are suffering. And if you can do something for them, fine. If not, may they be well. May they find their way sometime, someplace. And it also stimulates you to reflect wisely on the nature of existence and how important it is to learn how not to suffer. Because quite often people who are in these situations are just, they've never been taught how not to suffer. Are you eventually meant to get to a point where you wish loving kindness for all human beings unconditionally? Yeah, that's the aim. That's the ultimate aim. And uh, that's that's a virtue. That's a virtuoso. That, that's a virtuoso. You know, a, that's like a person who can stand up at Carnegie Hall and play this beautiful piece on the violin that is superhuman and make it beautiful. Not everybody can do that. In fact, only a small fraction of people can ultimately do that. Yeah. Under every circumstance. But some people can pull it off, and we aim for that, and we aspire to that. And it's not just when we're in a nice, safe place and we're thinking, oh, um, there's all kinds of people out there that would like to kill me, <laughs> but I'm in a nice, safe place, so may they be well. Yeah. Sometimes you're not in a safe place. You're, they they ha- control your life. They round you up and put you in prison. They put you in a concentration camp. They shoot at you. They beat you. They strike you. They shout at you. They spit on you. How is your loving kindness then? <laughs> now, it would be, if you're a virtuoso, unshakable. Loving kindness, unshakable. Uh, you know, you think about it like this. You know, you might have a, a brother or a cousin or a, a sister or even a parent that is, has a mental illness. And you might know them for a period of time, even before they have these symptoms. So this happens regularly in life. A couple of the major mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar person as a, as a young person is normal and usually quite bright uh, with many capabilities. And you might have known them for 15 years, 20 years, even. And you, they're your, you're, they're your dear ones. You've known them all your life, and, and, but something goes off with them at some point in life. They start having delusions. They, they become paranoid. They, they think you're trying to poison their food, or, and they might even attack you. But you, you know that, that they're having hallucinations. Yeah. So you're not, you're not angry at them. All you have is this feeling of like, they think what's going on is real. They, they, they believe their delusion. So if it's, if it's your son, your daughter, that is, that is in a state of uh, mental ill health, and they are shouting at you, they may even be threatening you and so forth. You, you don't, all you feel is, is compassion for them. You're not, yeah. you're not, a, you don't, you're not insulted or angry. You, you feel nothing but pity for them. You understand them. Yes. 
So everybody that's that's angry and wants to kill you and all this kind of stuff is is suffering a delusion. They're motivated. They don't know any better. They've been told something. They've been convinced of something. Either it's their own delusions, their own lack of skill, or somebody else has convinced them, etc. So we see them as just total ignorance and suffering is what they're experiencing. Now, we don't put ourselves in harm's way. We try to remove ourselves when we can, but the only way to make a situation worse is, is for you to get angry, grief-stricken, resentful, saddened by, the, by their behavior. That doesn't help you. That, in fact, is the worst thing you can do for yourself. I was going to say, I try living my life behind a philosophy that is don't let something you can't control control you. And most of the times we can't control how people treat us. Exactly. And uh, we, now we take it up as a, as a kind of a playful exercise in life. You're almost hoping to run into somebody that's uh, uh, is a little insulting or a little hostile, <laughs> just so you can see how you're doing with your, with your game. <laughs> so we can practice our mental yeah. fortitude. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. sure. See uh, somebody insults you or, or looks at you like, what are you doing here? You know, you, you're, you don't have enough money. Come on, you, et cetera. It's, <laughs> nice, it's a nice situation to be in because you can see, because it's easy if everybody's respecting you and everything, you don't yeah. get to, to practice your skills. So every now and then it's good to, you know, be judged a little bit, you know, by somebody and say, and, and, and feel how e well and easy you can be in the midst of this judgment. No problem. How would you describe somebody to do a loving kindness meditation? What are some recommendations? Well, first of all, it's to, uh, guidance by the voice of another, uh, another person speaking in a kindly and lighthearted way who has goodwill that the very tone of another person's voice can bring you into this. Now, it's, it's a combination of the words themselves, but the tone that it's delivered in. And, like, uh, you know, loving kindness is like a, a mother is playing with her child. Oh, she talks in, in the way that the child understands and the child is smiling. So the, the type of instruction should be to conjure up images of, of examples of loving kindness. 